You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Talk about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Funk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. I am your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we select a year and choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year to discuss. No guests today, so I got to do the selecting. Went with a weird one. Did you? I mean... I mean, I guess I could have gone weirder. Yeah, you really could have. I mean, we were looking at the charts earlier... Uh, on the Patreon. Yes, patreon.com slash punkladapod. For $1, you get access to all of our bonus audio, which includes this week, a chart dive on the year 2015. Chart dives are fun. Chart dives are easy. Chart dives are fun. Chart <laughs> dives are easy. Uh, my window is open. I should probably close it. <laughs> it's going to get hot. Well, my landlord is mowing outside my window right now, so... I don't hear it, so... It'll pick up. Yeah. Most of the background noise, I feel confident I can gate out, but if it gets really loud again, I will get up and close the window. We don't have a guest, it's, so we're not going to kill the flow. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So it'll if you hear like, noises... It'll be like the ambient noises, like the birds chirping that on uh, the John <laughs> Russell episode. Yeah. I mean, I was listening to a podcast today where one of the hosts, I guess, had a window open because you could just hear cicadas the whole time. <laughs> Which I'm like, that's early. They haven't started here yet. But uh, he's in like the Chicago area. So that makes sense. It's going to get colder sooner there. So they're probably out earlier. Yeah. Anyway. uh, Yeah. Patreon. All sorts of bonus audio out there. Lots of different subjects and styles and years and all sorts of good audio over there. I guess good being your decision on whether or not it's good. But you decide. Yeah. Uh, every week I do a new release Friday bonus audio where I make give myself way more work on a Friday than I should, where I tell you uh, five albums that came out that day that uh, I was enjoying. So You can also join the $10 tier where you get to select what album we talk about on the show and maybe even come on the show if you'd like. That's what we're doing next week. Uh, we had a giveaway and uh, we're going to be speaking with the winner of said giveaway about an album he selected and that's going to be a fun one. We're on all forms of social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PunkLottoPod, PunkLottoPod at gmail.com. Our voicemail is 202-688-PUNK. Uh, no subjects this week to talk about, I guess, unless you can think of laughing in a song. I was given a couple more examples of laughter in a song by our mystery madball caller. Uh, actually, he brought up, I'll tell you what it is. He actually messaged me and told me that... A song with laughter in it. He said it's not quite Madball, but close. It's Slapshot, and the song is called The Last Laugh, which ends with laughing. That would be so. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the last laugh. So if you know any songs with laughter in them, call the voicemail and tell us what it is. Uh, what's the other the other prompt we've we've put out there recently? Oh, yeah, yeah. The EPs. Yeah. What is an EP by an artist that kind of changed a band's direction or served as like a statement piece? And like caveats to that being like it has to be like between albums or yeah I. I would almost go as far as to say, like, the first mission of Burma EP, Signals, Calls, and Marches, is it really is such a significant, like, fully formed release. It wasn't, like, extra material from an album, and it wasn't it wasn't basically a, a glorified demo. It was truly an album. It was just really short. I think that one could be, be an exception to the, uh, to the rule. Yeah, we got a few responses on twitter where i posted the question and uh expert timing they said burst and bloom by cursive that's a good one um, that's a i i'm familiar with that one that's actually yeah. the cursive 
release that I know the best. <laughs> and then uh, Made Bed responded with also SC Four Winds by Bright Eyes. Hard to imagine the album from Wide Awake, Digital Ash to Casadega without it. I don't know my Bright Eyes discography well enough to really know. I thought Four Winds was a record, but yeah, if it's an EP, that makes sense. Uh, and our good friend Jason Salbushima, punch enthusiast, said Tinnitus by Lifetime. It's like, oh yeah, obviously. They went from being an almost unlistenable band to one of the greatest <laughs> punk bands of the late 90s, early 2000s. Sorry, uh, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> one of my contributions is so obvious, I can't believe I didn't um, think of it on the show, would be Project Marsh by Minutemen. Yeah. And you said you didn't know if it counted as a shift, but... I think it does, especially when you listen to Three Way Tire that came out after it. They definitely, the joke was they were going merch, going commercial, but the remnants of that sound are on Three Way Tie. Yeah. And who knows what would have happened, you know, had Deben lived and what they would have done going forward. Looking at what Firehose did, see, it's hard to say though. Because Firehose started as leftover dose songs, they were. Yeah, because Firehose, I'd say, is probably more a Mike Watt band. Like, you know, the instincts of Mike Watt's solo material, or even Mike Watt's Minutemen songs, feel more like what Firehose is. And I don't know that if Deben would have followed down that weirdo path, or if he would have been the other side pulling them back to, like, the more pop sensibility stuff. Like, hard to say. They could have gone real weird, but also maybe not. Who knows? But uh, yeah, if you have an EP that you think uh, kind of represents this feel, then uh, give us a call and leave us a message. That's 202-688-PUNK, in case you missed that number. And Dylan, you used the Substack. I wrote a review of a Wilco <laughs> record. <laughs> Not a new one. Nope, just a random old Wilco record. Not even an old, like a, like a mid-period Wilco record. <laughs> you call it Yeehaw Draw. Yeah, I don't know what the reaction is. Do y'all want me to do that? <laughs> Random country records? Uh, I don't know. I pulled a jazz record, too, that I haven't written anything about yet. I enjoyed the record. Um, maybe this will be the extent of how much I talk about it, but uh, it was a Tony Malaby record. Saxophonist from Arizona, actually. Um, and it's a pretty straightforward free jazz record, but I think it's a... What I liked about it is that it doesn't feel like a lecture it doesn't feel so heavily composed, which is an issue I have with a lot of the more avant-garde jazz of the recent last 20 years or so. Uh, it really does just sound like a true free jazz improvisational record. And I enjoyed it. I have a feeling I wouldn't. I think you'd get it, but I don't think you'd enjoy it. <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah. I probably would get it. I get most jazz. I just don't enjoy most I've heard. <laughs> For those interested, uh, it is Tal uh, Tony Malaby's Tamarindo record. And that is, you can read Dylan's Wilco review over on punkladapod.substack.com. I think that's everything. So, whenever it came time deciding what we were going to talk about this week, I was looking at the years we've done. I was like, wow, we've done a lot of these decades lately. Like, we could do another 80s, but I'm tired of every time when it's just us, we talk about an 80s record. Yeah, we end up on something that we don't like. <laughs> and we get in trouble. <laughs> it just seems like every time we do one of these by ourselves, we wind up with an 80s pick. Meanwhile, the guests, it's probably because the guests are always like, I want the 90s <laughs> or the 2000s. It was oh. like, of course you did. It's like the best, the densest era of music. Now That's, that's really what, what I, it is. It, now that's what I call an era I can be nostalgic for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. So then our, our other options is either just do something that like a year that like we probably did within this calendar year already, or we could do the eighties, which we're tired of, or we can go all the way up to the 2010s, the dreaded 2010s, a decade nobody wants to talk about. Unfortunately, there's a lot of great records through those years, but I guess it feels too recent or it's too fresh in people's minds that they uh, don't want to talk about it. It doesn't feel classic. Um, no. Right, because stuff in the 2000s, it's starting to feel classic now. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing is we... The early early mid-2000s, I feel like we're having the... Enough time has gone 
buy that we can reassess a lot of things. We can reevaluate things. Um, that's definitely a tack that people, a track that people take when talking about records from that time period. I mean, it's at least my perspective on a lot of the stuff that we've done from that that time period. It's like, okay, well, I didn't like this then, but I was a butthead then. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, and then there's also like, you know, there's like, has this aged well? Or that's also another perspective you can take with that stuff. The 2010s, I think everyone can still draw the line through what was coming out in 2010, 20. 12, 2015, the year that we're doing now, to today. you That progression is still pretty fresh in your mind. A lot of those bands are still active in that from that decade, you know. But I think, They're, yeah. It's a decade, too, that is like it's not so long ago that it fell out of your rotation, even. Like, there's a chance a lot of this stuff was still in your rotation. Or maybe, like, you go to it once a year or something like that. I don't know. I am curious about the... We've had some younger people on the show, and even they don't seem to want to touch any of the 2010 stuff. And you would think <laughs> that that really. would be like, okay, like did some of the stuff that came out then would be formative for you, right? Yeah. But I guess I think about it as like if I was 25 uh, being on a podcast, would I necessarily want to, want to have talked about a record that came out in 20, 2005, 2006, 2007? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on what it is. Yeah. Well, I also think, too, with the way we do our show, we we kind of keep it punk and punk adjacent. And the 2010s were an era where punk died. Identity crisis. Yeah. Punk doesn't know what it is anymore. I still say punk doesn't know what it is anymore. Everything, everybody calls some stuff, you know, punk records, literally anything other than punk. So it kind of leaves you with a subgenre, like a lot of heavy stuff, a lot of metalcore, deathcore, all that kind of stuff still shows up just because it's like, yeah. It's still metalcore. And <laughs> metalcore and hardcore and the heavy stuff in general. And it's really interesting how fast it moves and how slow it moves. Mm-hmm. How And it's very similar to metal. How, like, I remember the whole, like, post-metal and sludge and stoner stuff as it was really starting to blow up mm-hmm. in the early mid-2000s. And you can absolutely still find so much metal that sounds like that. Yeah. But there's tons of it. (laughs) Yeah. And it really progresses in these really minute ways really quickly. But the overarching sound is still sleep riffs. (laughs) Yeah, there's... they they I say like metalcore and deathcore and that kind of stuff. Like they... It's still the same style of songwriting. I guess it's still the same kind of music, but it's more of like the production techniques have gotten higher. And so like, that's the thing that gets adopted the most, or it's like, wow, now we can add like these like weird digital elements to our hardcore and deathcore and metalcore. And it just sounds cool. Whereas it would have sounded much more dated. I don't know. I'd be very curious to see if in 10 years, if like those deathcore bands would like, like, or even fucking Code Orange. Like, their Code Orange is, like, digital, industrial, new metal sound is going to sound super duper dated. Like, when they're doing their weird, like, like <laughs> robot talk and stuff. And if it's going to sound super dated and very, like, oh, like a lot of digital stuff from, like, the 2000s sounds now. I don't know. Hard to say. But, so, I picked a year that we haven't done in a long time. I meant to look and see what year we actually did. Last time we did do this one, we talked about one of them. But we're doing 2015. If you give me a second, I could tell you specifically what we've done from 2015. I know for a fact we talked about uh, Coliseum's Anxiety's Kiss, which we talked about on the Patreon again. Then again, I think we've done it twice now. Yeah, uh, that was just us. And then we did an episode on Chelsea Wolfe's Abyss with Colleen from Pass the Mic. So, yeah, we've done this here twice now. So this is our third run at it. That was 2020 when we talked to her. <laughs> like pre COVID 2020, I think. Pre COVID. It was like, yeah. Like, but like yeah. A few so, weeks, a few yeah. weeks out from it, probably. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so 2015, uh, we did a pretty deep dive on it. We saved the first couple pages to talk about on Rate Your Music, the punk charts for 2015, sorted by popularity. And Dylan, you were complaining about this before we even recorded that uh, the Patreon. You hate this page, right? Yeah. So if we're looking at 
2015, the top of the punk charts on Write Your Music. And this is what I mean, you know, identity crisis. And I think this is something that maybe I said this on the Patreon, uh, but it bears repeating here, I guess. Calling things that aren't punk, punk <laughs> was a big thing. Uh, we've got two Death Grips releases. Yeah. We have Chelsea Wolf, the record that we talked about, you know, one of I feel like one of the biggest stretches in genre we've done on this show. Yeah, it's up there with uh, what the Silver Mountain Zion. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, no one was calling that a punk record. I think this is just kind of an you know one of the flaws of the way genre trees are structured on this site. But you know, historically, yes, gothic rock does come out of post punk, mm-hmm. but I think it fused with metal and industrial and other sounds so early on that it really did become its own thing but we have like a little ugly main record on here and a kid cuddy though that's like an alt rock kid cuddy record he's done that a couple times and it's supposed to not be good (laughs) kid cuddy hasn't been good since what man in the moon i don't know enough but there's a lot of the big stuff that i think maybe even falls properly under the punk uh, umbrella I I don't really like <laughs> um, oh uh, Viet Cong who are now preoccupations because they got shit for their name uh, Jeff Rosenstock we cool blah 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 uh, there's a Slater Kenny record no cities to love I've never listened to that one I don't think it's not the St. Vincent one no that's later it's probably fine it's probably good I, I just don't haven't listened to it I don't remember anyone being excited about it no, but I don't know if we would have been like into the, were we into them yet in 2015? Really only aware of them. I don't think I had really listened to any of their records at that point. Yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, but like even you look at like, oh, there's Turnover and uh, what else we got? What else? What else? Uh, <laughs> the, the title fight hum record. Yeah. Or one of them, I guess. I think they actually did that sooner than I. Laurel Green kind of went in that direction. The yeah. Hyperview was the full-on Hum Worship record. See, and that was it. It was the emo bands were like, ah, we don't want to do emo anymore. We want to do Hum. Like, huh? Okay. Hum? To the rest of us who weren't in the know about Hum, you're like, that Stars band? There's so much more than that. And there's this other band you've never heard of called Failure. <laughs> that did the same thing. <laughs> uh, The World is a Beautiful Place and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die, or at least Harmlessness. This is like... They became something big. I would never expect that band to become huge. What's the breaking point with them? Whenever, if ever? 2013 album? Yeah. That's the blow up. The glow up? Pretty much immediately. Yeah. They had a bunch of EPs before. The demo, the formlessness EP. Wait, they used the name formless? Harmlessness. Aha, I see. Josh is dead. Bunch of splits. Bunch of splits. Yeah, it does take until whenever, if ever, for them to blow up. And then they just continued to blow up. And now they're like kind of luminaries of whatever they are now. Because I don't even know what you call them now. I wouldn't call them an emo band anymore. Post emo? Maybe? Is that a thing? I mean, think, I think it should be. I think what they do is that. Yeah. Because yeah, it's not called- full on like, it's not full on um, spacey hum rock yeah. or anything like that. And it's not, it's not full on post rock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Turnstile. Nonstop feeling. Did I remember I that coming style? out. Did you mention Turnstile? I thought you mentioned I mentioned Turnover. Turnover. That's right. Yeah. Turnstile put out Nonstop Feeling. <laughs> it's funny to me that that band keeps putting out records that people are like, holy shit, it's changing the direction of punk. And like, I listen to them and I don't care. Well, you're they, in the minority. They were more quicksand. Now they're more 311. <laughs> I like Glow On. They got on TV, which is something for hardcore. I I do think it's important that that record did what it did because we haven't had a punk record really do anything like that in a long time. It is cool to see that happen. As much as I Especially don't care hardcore. about their record, I think it is still really cool to see something so, so subcultured mm-hmm. making such a big impact yeah. on pop culture in general. Especially during this time period of people being like tongue-in-cheek, hee-hee, pop-punk, Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Olivia Rodrigo. 
Willow Smith. That's over too, though. Like it feels like that moment's done too, because didn't didn't what's his nut nut say? Um, he's done with punk now too. Machine gun. I'm trying to think of something to call him, but other than sex pest, but machine gun fella, <laughs> felon. <laughs> uh, he's got accusations too. Check him out. Yeah, well, God. you know, I mean, he's my age, and look how he's dressing and acting. <laughs> Come on. Uh, but uh, I'm looking at this, like, even the second page, I'm like, ah, oh, God, I don't care about any of this. I think I've come to the conclusion that 2015 was not a good year for punk music. There's good stuff, because there will literally always be good stuff, but overall, mm, it's not great. And I just see so many just metal records on here, too. Like, you can't even pretend that these are punk adjacent albums. There's definitely stuff on here that is highly rated now, higher rated now and being pushed to the top because of where the band went. There's a Screaming Females record that I don't think was a big deal when it came out, uh, but it's higher up on here because obviously that band is a big deal. Uh, there's a Bully record, which is like the same thing. It's like nobody knew that record when it came out. Yeah. But that's a huge band now, so... That Cloakroom record, that was a hype one. Uh, I do remember that one from that yeah. year. Listening to it and being pretty bored with it. <laughs> yeah. It's it's dire. <laughs> Honestly. Like, Sports and Sports released uh, records that year. The, the latter being now uh, Remember Sports. I can't believe that there were two active sports that were going on that were kind of the same level. <laughs> But the one has a period at the end. And in, like, same scenes. That Sports with a Period was a Midwest emo band. And, like, Sports was, like, a lo-fi... That lo-fi indie pop that comes from emo. Yeah. But also, that, that Sports band doesn't really do a lot, I don't think. But also, it's kind of an ungoogleable name. So, it's good they changed their name to Remember Sports. Much better. Yeah. I don't know. 2015, overall, even after going through all these years, I, I think it's a bad year in general. A bad year with some good records that we loved that no one else cared about. So how about we talk about a record that people did care about before it came out and then stopped caring. <laughs> we'll get into it. Uh, so 2015, I went with Tenement and their album Predatory Headlights. Wisconsin. Uh, they are a punk rock band. They formed in 2006. So early. Uh, they released this record June 2nd, 2015. It was released on vinyl and CD on Don Giovanni Records, and then later on cassette by Deadbroke Records. This is their third album and follows their two 2011 albums, Napalm Dream and The Blind Wink. The person on this album is Amos Pitch. He does guitar and vocals. Jesse Pancamo does bass and eric mayer plays drums but honestly there's a lot of instruments on this album this album also features a ton of support from friends providing backing vocals bells strings uh the most notable members being amos's bandmates in dusk colin wilde riley crow matt stranger and julia blair who has also released solo records and the album was produced and engineered by amos as well as justin perkins and Justin Perkins has played with the Riverdales, Ben Weasel, and Screeching Weasel. 
and he's also produced albums by Nob Dylan and his Nobsolites, which was Reverend Norb from Boris the Sprinkler doing Bob Dylan covers. He'd also produced albums by The Leftovers, The Riverdales, The Methadones, Dan Vapid and The Cheats, a lot of Ramones core bands. And he has over 600 technical credits to his name, including this year's Beach Bunny record. So still very active. And uh, yeah, it's a double album. It's their longest to date. Features 25 tracks with a 78 minute runtime. Thankfully, with 25 tracks, it's not longer than 78 minutes. But uh, yeah, I'll pause there for that. But um, okay, we've talked about Tenement before. We were fans of Napalm Dream. I never really cared about the blind wink. Did you? It didn't connect. No. Um, Yeah, I really, I remember listening to it and being like, well, Napalm Dream's really good, at least. (laughs) (laughs) But it was also like a confusing release date. I think the blind wink, I I was never even fully sure that the blind wink was a new record. I kind of always got the impression it was like a comp or like demos or something like rarities. Because I think I heard clips and I was like, these are super duper raw. This must be older material. I don't know which came out first. I think the I think Napalm Dream came out first. But yeah, I remember hearing some songs from Blind Wink thinking it's not a real record. <laughs> I don't think until now I realized that it's really a real record because they have a lot of that kind of stuff. They have like two compilations called like Bruised Music. They just have a very confusing discography. But do you remember how you felt leading up to Predatory Headlights? I remember being pretty excited for it because I loved Napalm Dream. Uh it was such a good record and i figured like this is like this is the the record that they're pushing because i don't remember them really ever pushing the line wink Mm-mm. which kind of lends to that like is it a comp is it something is it a demo record what is it but there was a lot of talk there was a lot of press about this record leading up to its release so i i remember i remember being pretty excited for it it was definitely a record that was on my radar that i was gonna like make a point of listening to it like the day of or shortly after its release. Yeah. Yeah, this was definitely that time period where it was like, you didn't always listen to everything the first day it came out, but you would have like one or two things, but you wouldn't have something every single week where you were like, I gotta hear that. It was just usually like every couple weeks you'd have a new record where you're like, oh, I'm waiting for that one. But I think it just changes. That just shows the change in how people absorb music now. It's very much move on to the next thing much faster than it used to be. Yeah, super excited. Did we know it was going to be a double album before it came out? There was probably a review or something on a press release that detailed the length of it. Um, I was vaguely aware of it. That's being that it was going to be an extra long album. You know, okay, I, I know for a fact we knew because I remember having the feeling of, you mean this band who plays 15 minute live shows is going to release a double album? Like I knew that already. I was like, there's no way they don't have enough songs. Like, how are they going to write, <laughs> do that? And it's arguable whether they did or not. But, um, yeah, I, I was, I remember being very excited for it and kind of just confused as how it was going to work, how they were going to do it. Um, do you remember how you felt after you listened to it? I was trying to remember when I listened to it. And I have a pretty distinct memory of listening to it while I was driving to Charlotte. And I just looked this up and I was like, I was driving to Charlotte for a show. And I realized it was, I was driving to Charlotte to see Shovels and Rope. I actually have that poster on my wall. Um, I was like, that show was June 5th. I'm like, when did this record come out? June (laughs) 2nd. Uh, So that's definitely the show that I was driving to. And... I remember listening to it in the car and driving, and I think I remember actively thinking while listening to it, I don't like this. (laughs) And this is apocryphal, I guess, but I feel like I might have turned it off. (laughs) I don't know that I actually sat and listened to the whole thing. I could have. Uh, The drive was certainly long enough that I could have listened to the whole thing on that drive, but I don't remember doing that. I think I switched to something else. (laughs) So my immediate, like my first, it was, it was the memory I have of this record has always been huge setup, big disappointment. And it, it really is one of the most significant records that I can think of in the last 10 years where I had that much disappointment in the record 
I think there have probably been records that I haven't been interested in or didn't like. Probably records that I disliked more, but they were records that I had higher, that I had a lower expectation for, or there were already like warning signs that I wasn't going to like that record. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, a lot of times there are the warning signs. You're just like, oh, I don't like that first single. Let's see what the second single is. Oh, don't like the second single. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. You know, like, but this, I think we, we probably had singles. We probably had tracks out and we were like, pretty good, pretty good. Looking forward to this record. And yeah, I remember listening to it. I also don't remember if I finished it either. The first time I listened to it, it might've been one of those ones where I was like, I started it and I was just like, I'm not feeling it. And I probably hit a wall and I can probably guess what that wall is on the record. And I was like, all right, I'm done. I'll try later. And to be honest, I don't know if I ever finished it. I might have. It seems unlikely that I wouldn't have finished it, but it probably was not until like a week or two later, you know? Yeah, I do recall coming back to it that year, and I more than likely would have listened to it in full at work. Where you were a captive audience. Where it was a little easier to just be like, all right, this is a long ass record and I'm just going to plow through it because I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. I already don't want to be here, so like I don't need the energy boost or anything. Nothing's going to work. <laughs> the funny thing is, too, like we have friends who also liked Tenement. They also liked Napalm Dream, like our friend Grant, who runs Bitter Melody Records. He liked Tenement. He was looking forward to this record. I don't think he liked it. Uh, our friend Josh Robbins runs, uh, you know, just spinning out. You know, he, he is a big Tenement fan, too. And I don't remember his reaction completely, but I think this is this is this is apocryphal, too. I don't remember, but I think he didn't like it either or didn't like it as much, you know, like that kind of thing. It seemed like everyone that we knew that was excited for this record didn't like it. And what's the number one, what's the number one thing that makes you not like it personally for you? Oh, wait. uh, Okay. I I will say, yeah, I will say that my number one reason for not liking it then was, and this was the thing that I thought it doesn't have the hooks. I wasn't, it was, it was a common, well, it was a, it was a combination of two things. It was, it was thinking these songs are running together in a way that I'm not differentiating them. They don't seem significant to me. The hooks are not as immediately memorable to me. And also this is a kind of experimental processy record with these like interlude sort of tracks and these what to me sound like song sketches that were then overproduced instead of just being like, here's 30 seconds of a song idea. And I was just, it was those two things together that I was just, it it didn't click. I didn't enjoy listening to it. And then it was just super long. I think my thinking was it was too long number one uh the experimental stuff on the album just was not working for me and you're right it 
didn't have the hooks that Napalm Dream had. There's no stupid world on this record, you know? There also the songs are a little slower and felt a little more like 60s rock too. I don't know. It just it didn't feel like the explosive like the high energy tracks didn't feel like the explosive tenement tracks that we had on Napalm Dream. So now, 2022, what is this? 7 years later? How did how did you feel revisiting it? So I revisited um, Napalm Dream earlier this year. Uh, part of my calendar. Um, when did that record come out? Would have been 2010? 11. 11, yeah. Yeah. Um, 2010 was last year. And I was like, I love this. I love this record. This is, this is a perfect record. And I posted something to an Instagram story, a song from, from that record. And I got so many reactions to it. Like people <laughs> liking just doing like the fire emoji or whatever, like liking it. And then, the, and there were two distinct people that d- like typed responses to it. Our friend of the show, Corey <laughs> and John Russell, uh, of gnawing. <laughs> and it was like perfect record. And then they both said predatory highlights headlights had a lot of great stuff on it too. And I was like, <laughs> I don't remember having any great stuff on it. <laughs> and I'm like, have I been wrong this whole time? Did I have like, just like, a bad listening experience and just didn't connect to it and then wrote it off. Was there something, is there something I'm missing? So when you picked this, I was like, okay, all right, then we'll, we'll test the theory. We'll, we'll find out what is the deal with this record. And the main thing, the main number one thing that I take, took away from listening to this record this time, I was very wrong about the no hooks. (laughs) I I was finding myself singing along to songs immediately. Hmm. I was hearing songs and being like, I recognize that song title. I know this chorus. I know this melody. They're distinct from Napalm Dream. And I'm like, why do I know them so well? Did I spend more time trying to like this record than I remember? And they got <laughs> like buried in there somewhere. All of the true, what I would say are like the true full band tenement songs on this record to me are really good and some of them are great some of them are like near classic tenement songs and i understand the non-rock songs on this record a lot more now and i have more of an appreciation of what he was trying to do or what they were trying to do with those songs but i still ultimately don't think they work yeah i am of the belief so there was this theory going on that you know we're getting a double album we're like oh boy, we got our next Zen Arcade and Double Nickels on the Dime. Like, that's what we were kind of anticipating. And then when it comes out and you go, this sure is not Double Nickels on the Dime or uh, Zen Arcade, I think it just kind of, like, sunk expectations so that, like, my desire to listen to it just evaporated because I was like, it's too long and it's not as amazing as those other double albums. And I think one of the problems with it is, so Amos wrote the entire record. No one else wrote it. Uh, They have a really weird writing breakdown because then the next record they put out that self-titled in 2016, Eric and Jesse wrote that entire record. Amos didn't write anything. So it's just this weird like breakdown, division of labor breakdown, which makes me now think the blind week is probably Jesse and Eric writing that whole thing and Amos writing all of Napalm Dream. Because I say, I think this record has more in common with Napalm Dream than The Blind Wink. And the self-title has more in common with Blind Wink than these two. So he wrote, he wrote it all. And he, in interviews, said that he thought of this album as four short albums on their own. Because he was thinking of it in the vinyl side. And he, he's, he seemed to think that you should just listen to a side and not immediately go to the next side. Like, let it breathe, let it wait. And I need to see, actually, I didn't look up the vinyl breakdown to see where the lines are drawn. And I'm wondering if that's going to make way more sense because I could see that. That makes sense to me. I'm looking for the uh, the sides. I'm trying to I want to see if I can find that breakdown somewhere. Yeah, I guess you would probably see that on the discogs for the vinyl. OK, yeah. OK. Oh, side A ends on Ants and Flies, which is the five minute like piano ballad no it doesn't side a ends on cold the pavement is no i'm looking at the disc i'm looking at the discogs page that's side b a through a1 through a15 15 tracks on side one 
No, there's eight tracks on side one. <laughs> one through A. Eight. Oh, I'm looking at a double cassette listing. Oh, yeah. Uh. Okay, so that makes so much more sense that Ants and Flies closes the end of the A side. Because if you thought of that as a record, you would most certainly put that as the last track as your album closer. So if we're looking at the B side, the B side's got... Okay, I see some issues still. There's one... Uh, B side, not strong. It has Garden of Secrecy. Mm-hmm. It has Whispering Kids, which is a really good one. I like Cold to Pavement is. I gotta get to my notes on... I, don't know, I like The Butcher and Curtains Closed enough. It's okay. It's okay. You Keep Me Cool is this like bluesy Rolling Stones type song. But then they close it on Cold as the Pavement. So it works. It works. It's not as good as Side A, but it's still solid. C. Well, that makes sense why those three songs are together on the album. Heavy Odor, A Frightening Place for Normal People, and Licking a Wound. The three, to me, worst tracks on the record. And they're an entire side. Yeah, so that's kind of the wall. That's the wall. Ants and Flies is the first <laughs> trip <laughs> of the wall. Ants and Flies was the, uh-oh. <laughs> this is five minutes long. Why I, is it so long? And I do, I do remember, I do remember listening to this record either on repeat listens or even maybe the first time being like, Ants and Flies, what? What is this? <laughs> and then it's followed by Garden of Secrecy, which is a song on its own that I like, but mm-hmm. is so repetitive that it's sequencing here if you listen to it straight through going ants and flies to garden of secrecy is kind of annoying (laughs) garden of secrecy works much better as a b-side opener than it does just a third of the way through the record quarter of the way through the record (laughs) kind of song after what is ultimately an interlude track that i don't like yeah and then the d-side is i'm your super glue which wow actually i'm a super glue is an awesome song Probably one of the best of the back half of the record. And I'd say like top three songs of the record, period, I think. And that goes all the way through the rest of the record, which the last three tracks are fine. I think it's Dishwasher's Meal and Keep Your Mouth Shut that I'm really like, ugh. Dishwasher's Meal is another interlude song. And Keep Your Mouth Shut is another acoustic song, which I think the acoustic songs are bad. I don't like the acoustic songs. I don't think they work. Yeah. So, and that's my problem. But this record, it's not the length, it's not the experimentation even. The idea of doing these interludes and, and acoustic songs, and I, I saw this record talked about, and I've repeated this, uh, of it being a process record, of being like, this is the idea of a song, and like, this is a song, and like, this is the difference in like production, and, and that you can, in different ways that you can approach different kinds of songs. The bulk of the record is fully finished tenement songs like mm-hmm. full-on rock songs and then what is supposed to maybe like represent the songwriting process or the creative process or the production process either gets over treated to the point where it's trying to be like almost cinematic but isn't engaging or is just not a good enough song in and of itself i'm thinking like the acoustic songs are like yeah no wonder you left this as acoustic <laughs> It just wouldn't, it wouldn't, it's, it doesn't sound like a song that would make the translation to a full band song. So I do now have to kind of reevaluate thinking of it in the way of his process of putting it in the order that he did of each side is basically a self-contained record in and of itself. I kind of think it works a little better when you think of it that way. But to be honest, nobody listened to it that way unless you bought the record. No one did. (laughs) You know, like. A majority of the people who heard the record heard it digitally first before they heard it on a turntable. And also the way people listen to records, for the most part, I don't think people are just like, all right, I listen to a side to put it away now. Like most, I'd say most final listeners will flip it, at least. You may not get to the second LP, but you'll at least flip it. So it's just not the way that people absorb music.
So when I listened to this record for this episode, I didn't listen to it in one whole sitting. I dropped off somewhere. I, I think I listened to most of it and then only had maybe like probably what would have amounted to the D side left mm-hmm. to come back to. That's that brick wall, man. Which and it wasn't even like an intentional like, oh, I'm tapping out. Like it was like, I'm home from work now. <laughs> I'm going to go take a shower. Uh, I'll pick this up tomorrow and finish it. So I didn't I would have listened to the whole thing in one sitting if I had had the time and had allocated the time to do it that way. But I'm kind of glad I didn't because picking it back up with the D side, especially with like hearing I'm your super glue on like the next day when you're picking up this record again, <laughs> it is such yeah. a great refresher. Just yeah. be like, this is good. This is a yeah. great song. This is a like an all time tenement song. Mm hmm. It gives it gave me like at least a little bit of a shot of energy to like go through the rest of the record and really appreciate it. I would actually be very curious to split this record into its four parts over like the course of four days or so. Yeah. Ooh, that's that third day though. Ooh. Yeah. So okay, I get it makes sense why because that was part of my problem listening to this record. I was like, all right, I tripped up on Ants and Flies. I did not like that song, and it was too long. But thankfully, there's a bunch of good songs on the B-side. There's some weird acoustic stuff I don't love, but it's whatever. I can deal with it. You hit that C-side with Heavy Odor, A Frightening Place for Normal People, especially that song, and Licking a Wound. It's a brick wall that it, it kills all of the momentum. And in a, in a digital or CD format... Why would you put that where you put that? You have to break those things up. You can't have this block of 20 minutes of a record that is just awful. (laughs) A frightening place for normal people is nine minutes long and not a song. Yeah. It's just like all percussion and some strings and... Heavy Odor is an acoustic song that is like strings too, and it's got like it's got like a There Will Be Blood soundtracky sort of feel to it. And Licking a Wound is just an acoustic song. I don't remember even really. It's just not a very good one. But those three, fuck, just <laughs> it is like twenty minutes because that one's nine. I don't remember how long Heavy Odor and if it's not twenty, it's fifteen. It's still too much of a record to do that to, to people. <laughs> And you know, no wonder they put I'm Your Super Glue right after that, because it's like, oh, thank God, one of the best songs on the record. You know, you have to. But that D side, they still throw a bunch of junk in there that I just don't like. I don't care about. I did not like Dishwasher's Meal. It's another piano string interlude. <sighs> Keep your mouth shut. I just didn't like. It is a record that something that occurred to me also, I would be curious to put all of the interlude acoustic non-rock songs on one record to listen to it that way split the rock songs split the non-rock songs see what the mood is of that weird wall of experimentation and acoustic (laughs) and it, it could be the kind it could be a kind of record that the songs don't work fitting on the lp but they're just like to me almost would make that difference like so obvious that it improves those songs to say like okay i know this is not going to be catchy garagey fuzzy power pop Mm -hmm. i know this is going to be something else entirely this is going to be a uh amos pitch soundtrack yeah because they've done two of those now (laughs) that's what they do now (laughs) And they pull it up, shudder to think. And then see see what holds up, what what works on its own. I don't I do remember Heavy Odor being one that works on its own. It was one of the few interlude tracks that I felt like it worked. Was interesting enough to me that it worked. And would have worked as even as an interlude, or not even in an interlude, but have been just kind of a different kind of song on the record if the record didn't have all of the side ending experiments yeah so i um i fixed the record i fixed it two ways so my first fix was okay chuck out ants and flies chuck out the nine minute track chuck out licking a wound dishwasher's meal and keep your mouth shut this is still a 53 minute record i left in 
some of the more experimental like i left the um the opening string intro i left the yeah i left the one string song the one you said that was good heavy odor i left heavy odor in there like i left stuff in there where you're still getting what they're going for like here's the stuff that okay this is the experimental stuff that is also included in the record it's 53 minutes long it gives you that out that you know experimental album feel to it it gives you the prestigious pseudo conceptual uh double album feeling yeah but it chops off the 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 crushing like hard to get through parts like i left the shorter ones so that you would have them and then eliminated the nine minute song which by the way i read multiple reviews for this record that said trim this record (laughs) and you'll get a better album and everyone said the nine minute song's gotta go so it's like ah okay this is listenable it's 53 minutes long still how can i fix it more and i call it the um the banger mix i even took out (laughs) i took out anything that was not full band tenement uh it's 41 minutes long still so some of the songs still have like the intro outro like piano and string stuff so you still even get a taste of it because you can't unless you go in and audacity and like literally cut them out of the song you know (laughs) they're gonna be part of the record i cut out theme of a cuckoo you know i cut out i even cut out some of the acoustic stuff that i just was like i don't i don't want this in here like i don't i do not want to hear this 41 minutes i fixed it (laughs) it starts with crop circle nation Goes through under the storm clouds, then picks up with Garden of Secrecy, goes through Why We Are What We Are, skips You Keep Me Cool, goes back to Cold as the Pavement, skips the thirty the twenty minute chunk, goes back into I'm Your Super Glue, and then I still cut Licking a Wound, High of High Hive of Hives. Did I cut Hive of Hives? I I probably could have left that one. Dishwasher's meal. I don't know. Hive of Hives is also like the closest to like a full band tenement song out of those acoustic Yeah. I, I like Tyler that Hives. I liked that song. Yeah, I could have left that one. But, yeah. And I cut out Keep Your Mouth Shut, Dishwasher's Meal. 41 minutes. Still kind of long. <laughs> My question is, at 41 minutes, is it too much of a slab of rock with no breathing room? There is still the breather, though. But there, there is still the, interlude. the in- interludes within the tracks that yeah. exist. So... You still get all those. So you get your breathers. So like, I don't know. It works to me. Um, I could throw high highs back in there and it gives you another little d- different texture. But you would probably resequence those tracks if you went just full like, we're going to try and recreate Napalm Dream. I'd probably resequence them. I'd probably throw I'm Your Super Glue much higher in the track list. Yeah. So I was looking at, I think it was the Wikipedia article and like, there's a line very early on that says initially ignored by many established music publications possibly due to its length and genre crossover it was not i don't remember this record being ignored it was not this was like (laughs) this was like brooklyn vegan talking about a punk record like like what's going on there like (laughs) pitchfork had an article up that day i'm sure they have an article i remember this was hyped this was talked about before it even came out but I guess the thing that they're specifically referring to, I don't know who wrote that, probably a member of the band. Um, it wound up, so it, it wound up on Rolling Stones like 15 albums you missed in 2015 list and Spins overlooked albums of 2015. It's like, because Rolling Stone and Spin in 2015 were already irrelevant. Yeah, they're publications oh. that didn't pay attention to anything and then want to publish a list of like, oh, this is what you missed. Like, no, you missed. This is what you missed because <laughs> you don't do your homework and on that rolling stone list it also featured an album by beauty pill you know the discord band chelsea wolf's abyss and yikes power bottom oh <laughs> they didn't know yeah um so it's like whoever wrote that is just like i only respect the oldest publications i don't pitchfork had it that day calm down yeah <laughs> I'm sure the print mags had reviews of them, too. I don't know if Decibel would have covered it, but I could see them maybe doing it. AP definitely had it. Rock Sound, Terrorizer. Oh, maybe not Terrorizer, but Rock Sound would have probably had something on it. Like, it was, that was the magazines people were reading. And then the websites were Pitchfork. And what, Stereo Gum? Stereo Gum probably did a piece on it. 
who cares that the Rolling Stone magazine and spin did uh, whatever. But even the spin article says, uh, cut that n- nine minute track that doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> it was number 100 on Village Voices Paz and Jop list. I looked at that. There are 1100 albums on that list. So what the fuck are you doing, Village Voice? <laughs> That's too many records. Or all music said there were moments of pretentiousness that make it hard to enjoy. Even the Pitchfork rec- review is just like, it gave it a 7.1, but even the, it was like Ian Cohen actually wrote that review for it too. And even he was like, there's good stuff here, but there's, you gotta fix it <laughs> to make it good. So it, it honestly seems very kind of like universally agreed upon. There's good stuff. There's also a lot of not good stuff, which kind of leads your to your comments from, John Russell and Corey there. There's great songs on there. There, there are. are. There are actually a lot of really great songs on here. Like, I want to talk about the positives. Crop Circle Nation is a great track. It's a great way to start the record off. Dull Joy is fun. Feral Cat Tribe is like a, a single. Like, it was like, I mean, they made a video for that one. Uh, Shriveled Fingers, it's pretty good. It felt very tenement. It felt like a song that could have been on Napalm Dream. It might not yeah. have been one of the standout tracks on Napalm Dream, but it would have been a good one. Yeah. Because that whole record's good, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like The Butcher. It has a Ramonesy vibe to it, and like a sing-songy chorus. I like Cold as the Pavement. I think it's a good ender to that side. It's also your last... It's the last stop for gas before you drive through the desert of the three tracks. And I'm Your Super Glue's awesome. High of Hives is good. I don't know why I marked that one down so low, but... And then the last three tracks, those three kind of blend to me. Maybe it's just the exhaustion of trying to listen to the whole record in basically one sitting, but Near You is very loud and very fuzzy, and, like, the intro riff was like, is this high on fire? What happened here? Matt Pike in this band now? So, yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff on here. And if you had just the Rockers on there as one record, you would say, not as good as Napalm Dream, but still pretty good. Good follow-up. I also did try the 2016 self-titled record. I don't like that one either. What is that record? It doesn't show up anywhere. It's just called Tenement, and it's like seven tracks. It's 18 minutes long. Eric and Jesse wrote the whole thing, and it feels like a record that a bass player wrote. <laughs> it's like the noisier, less fun side of Tenement that exists. Okay, Tenement EP 2015. It's considered an album, but I guess everybody's like, lengthwise, it's only seven tracks, it's 18 minutes, it's an EP. Yeah, in August. I completely missed that when it came out. Yeah, yeah. Because it came out on like a little, it was like deranged. Yeah. I did see some articles, like an interview that they did with Amos, where like the intro article says the owner of Don Giovanni approached the band and he said that he wanted them to make something special for the next record. And so this was what they did in response to that request. Hmm. So he, they were prompted to make. (laughs) They don't say what that something special was. Yeah, was he just like, do something real good? <laughs> was he just like, make another Napalm Dream? <laughs> and then they were like, you said special. I was like, yeah, I meant good. I don't know. I don't, why would you just say, I needed more clarification on that, because I never saw another like explanation of what that request meant. He also requested it in 2011, and they gave it to him in, t- no, no, 2013 is when he requested this, what that article said. So they took three years and wrote this. Well, he toured with, that's the, a, a big part of the story that I, I guess is worth talking about. This record was written entirely by Amos, a lot of it drawing on his experience touring as the drummer for The Nerves. Yeah. Uh, the Nerves were our pop from the 70s doing uh, a reunion tour, so. Yeah. I can definitely see how this is kind of a tour record, especially in the way that he, you know, the the production and the interlude tracks kind of and the acoustic stuff reaches for like more pastoral rural kind of themes um which but they're also from wisconsin so like yeah they're farm kids and they as like the middle of nowhere appleton wisconsin is like nowhere yeah though they supposedly had a house called the bfg that was like hundreds of bands came through there and played there and house shows there um, I don't, I never looked up like flyers or anything to see like who played, but I imagine probably a lot of Midwestern bands came through there and it was supposedly like one of these like really special punk houses 
Like everybody is like, wow, you could just feel the magic. There are thousands of records in this house and you'd you'd find a stack of records and then you'd go from like a punk record to a Otis Redding to a, a No Way record. is kind of like this record is, you know, like all their sounds, their influences come from everything. And then they recorded a lot of the record there, though this record has like four recording places listed. So I'm assuming they had to do some other stuff. But um, and then the BFG was then condemned and torn down a week after they finished recording the record there. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, nobody should live there after we were there. It's like, yeah, because you punks probably ruined it. (laughs) It's a punk house that you had hundreds of bands play in. Okay, the Midwest Sound, the BFG House, Bobby Peru Recording and Mystery Room Mastering and Recording. Oh, that's the mastering. So three recording locations. Yeah. Did this record kill Tenement? I don't know. They toured with some significant people. Uh, yeah. Sheer Mag. What did they do? Didn't they do a tour with like Charles Bradley? Yeah. Yeah. Tour with Charles Bradley. Uh, Iggy Pop played them on his radio show. Uh, his yeah. BBC radio show. Uh, they played with Iggy Pop, didn't they? Somewhere? Uh, I think that's in the Wikipedia. Maybe. But they also, you know, rode around in a 15-passenger van with Dusk and played <laughs> yeah, um, half-a-foot-tall stages in record stores, which is, you know, the kind of thing that they were obviously very used to doing and what you would expect them to do, but is not sustainable for most bands. Yeah. And they're also a band that we've talked about seeing them live before. We've talked about seeing them at Fest and, you know, how they're a band that gets a 45 minute slot then plays 20 minutes of maybe. Yeah. You're seeing them at Lunchbox Records and Dusk playing like a 30 minute set, mm-hmm. you know, like more of a full set that you would expect from a touring band. And, and then Tenement being like 20 minutes at max with a guy on stage holding a saxophone. <laughs> Who didn't play anything until the last song, and then he just played noise, like one note honked on the saxophone. It's like, this guy is riding around in the van <laughs> on this tour to play one note. And I saw him, uh, so I saw him twice at Lunchbox, one was with Grant, and it was just like, they played 15 minutes, and it was fucking incredible, and they left. And that was the end of the show. And our takeaway was, they stinky. <laughs> Because it's like, he was wearing like a leather jacket in the middle of summer. Yeah. Playing a set. It's like, and probably not bathing between shows just because, you know, you're in a van. And I don't mean this to insult them, but they do seem like natural deodorant wearers. (laughs) Yeah. So. um, They lived in a punk house. Punk houses smell bad. Like, that's not, that's not a. Not news to anybody. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, they're, you know one of the few bands I've ever seen play through a Sun Model T and actually drive that amp hard enough to get it to do the Sun Model T sound <laughs> that is so, so loud. Um, they're just not a band with commercial appeal. Yeah, they would get booed on that Charles Bradley tour. Yeah. Like half of it would cheer and half of them would boo. And he said that there is like... Some shows we were louder than ever, even almost too loud for myself on the stage. So, like, on those tours where they're getting booed, they would just turn it up even more. Yeah. They're they're true punk artists. And mm-hmm. it as much as doesn't work on this record, some of the things don't work on this record, I still respect the reaching. I just don't think that they were successful on some of those ideas. Yeah. But they were very dedicated to doing things a certain way that I think is really admirable. Yeah, so that original thesis of there's some pretty great stuff on this record is uh it's true. There's some pretty great stuff on here. It's worth it's worth listening to once to see what they did like all the way through. It's probably better to listen the way Amos intends it of a, just a side by side as an album. Or you can do your own thing and just like cut the best stuff or you know out and make it, you know, trim it up. Trim the fat. I wouldn't lie and say the double nickels on the dime doesn't have something that could have been trimmed on it. You know, there's stuff on that record that, like, you probably could have cut that. It wouldn't have been missed, you know? Same with Zen Arcade. All double albums have something that could be cut. I think that those 
excursions and experimental ideas on those records, though, have something that they add to the records. Um, like, the, like Double Nickels has like the jamminess or like the the very Mike Watt mm-hmm. kind of thing, or the covers, which are disposable, especially <laughs> in the way that they treat some of them. Yeah, but it adds to that whole experience of a punk band making a record and it gives you a little bit of that fly on the wall feeling of of being in their practice or riding in the van with them and what kind of songs that they listen to in the van what kind of songs they play at home by themselves um and yeah none of those things really none of them are nine minutes long (laughs) and even them you know like zen arcade being like the more the more comparable like this ending with you know a 10 minute jam or uh having that song looped backwards (laughs) earlier in the record or like the acoustic song that's totally different or the interlude tracks they actually accomplish that psychedelia that they were aspiring to and i don't know what the intention always is on the more experimental tracks on this record is it film score is it it could be film score because that's songs? what that's what they've done since like besides that like short album that the bass player and the drummer wrote uh they've not done anything else other than soundtracks for movies that i've literally never heard of more people have probably heard the soundtrack than seen those movies even like this, this that kind of thing it's like the shutter to think movie soundtracks for movies that you're like what are these movies are they real movies? Are they just like independent things, but you have wider distribution than the film? <laughs> Motion Picture Proxy and Smother Me in Hugs. Those are the two movies they've done soundtracks for. Smother Me in Hugs is a short. So my guess is the other one's a short too. There's a lot of movies called Proxy. But yeah, um, I think I've said all I have to say about this record. Any other final thoughts? I would say that this record is a lot better than i remember it yeah agreed like so much better than i remember it despite its significant flaws (laughs) i would say i would welcome more tenement music yeah i'd agree i want more i mean i guess are they focused on dusk is dusk amos's main thing now dusk are fairly active julia blair had a solo record last year i think and i like dusk but But not as much as tenement He's a completely different band. Yeah. Yeah. I'd welcome some new Tenement, the classic three-piece. Just give me give me a 15-minute album. I don't even care. All right. Well, I think that's everything. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. This was a this was a fun one to dig into. I I, I like, kind of like my new approach to uh, album selection. So uh, I think, Dylan, you'll get the next pick in a couple weeks. So I think we have two weeks in a row with guests. So um, due to some rescheduling. But... All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week.